Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Patrick Babidatsky, and this is Chronolab, a podcast about the practical uses of history in business, tech, and beyond. I talk to historians, to company leaders, consultants, and researchers. I'm learning how thinking about change over time can create value for organizations, and I want to know how history and historical training can make an impact on the world beyond the university walls. History is really fascinating, but can it be practical? Can it be actionable? How does historical thinking fit into the 21st century marketplace? Join me to find out. In the first episode of Corona Lab, I'm talking with James Cortada, a history PhD who spent four decades working for IBM. At IBM, Cortada moved between sales, management, and consulting. He kept writing about IBM and information technology. He's also been advocating energetically for closer collaboration between historians and company executives, arguing that the two groups had more in common than they realized. Join me. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for joining me on the first episode of the Chronolab podcast. Pleasure to be here. I really feel very honored to welcome you for this first episode because I know that you have such a fascinating professional trajectory. I know that we're going to have a lot to talk about. Just to recap on your biography a little bit, to put this in context, you did a PhD in European history in 1973 at Florida State. You worked in sales and management and consulting and a host of other roles at IBM for 39 years and three months, I read on your profile. And you've been writing history of information technology uh, and of IBM. Uh, Your history of IBM has been called the, the definitive history of IBM. It's titled IBM, The Rise and Fall and Reinvention of the Global Icon. It was published in 2019. More recently, earlier this year, you published The Birth of Modern Facts, How the Information Revolution Transformed Academic Research government and businesses which is a sweeping history of a very timely subject and includes a chapter on the historians contributions to it which i enjoyed very much and you've also been writing about applied history the uses of historical skills and training in the business setting a subject that some consider heretical some consider just plain odd and some consider cutting edge and i'm in that number so to frame our conversation i i thought we could go under the umbrella of two big themes and questions uh, one of which is what's been your experience as an historian in the business world and the other how do you see the existing and yet unrealized opportunities for historians and business leaders to interact so maybe i could turn to some specific questions as we try to digest these topics could you first of all talk about why you did, did a phd in the history in the first place maybe well I had been raised in a number of countries before becoming a university student, and so history was just part of my world. So I studied history as an undergraduate and then decided to get a PhD in history, thinking that I would be a professor of history as a career. Mm -hmm. It just seemed to make sense. And so I went off to graduate school and did my PhD in modern European history, with a uh, slant in diplomatic, because my father was a diplomat, I knew that world very well. Mm-hmm. That was a logical transition. Mm-hmm. As I got toward the end of my uh, uh, university training, the job market disappeared for historians. It was 
the year I completed was the worst year to find a job as a professor. And I looked at that and I said, well, that's stupid. Why should I go around and, and not uh, be able to get a job? teaching history. So I stepped back and I said, well, what is it I really like? What I really like was the communications, the research, uh, the writing. I liked the teaching part, but that wasn't as crucial because in every job you teach, you mentor. Right. I already knew that. So I decided I had enough of life experiences to realize that I could do a lot of other things besides simply be a professor of history. Mm -hmm. So my father suggested, well, why don't you go into business? Pick an industry that's appropriate for your generation and, uh, you know, let's get you in there somehow. Mm -hmm. Well, so I took a look around and in the 1970s, the computer industry was very hot. It was the future. I said, okay, we'll go into that, even though I knew nothing about computers. So logically doing research on what the industry looked like, who were the major players and so on and so forth, I came across IBM, which at that time had a training program. They would train anybody that they brought in from multiple disciplines. And to quote a, a teacher in a, a one of the uh, training programs, he, he said, uh, we don't care if you've been in the army, we're going to teach you to fire a rifle our way. <laughs> in other words, they were going to teach us business, computing, and so on. Mm -hmm. So quite more by action than by design, I met an IBM executive at a party mm -hmm. before I completed my dissertation. And we chatted about IBM and history and everything else. And he called me up the next day and said, you're wasting your time being a professor. You should come to work for IBM and really do some really cool stuff. We're in the middle of everything. Well, a couple months later, I completed my dissertation, graduated, and I agreed to go to work for IBM because it sounded like a wonderful opportunity. And it, was, mm -hmm. it was the Google of its day. It was the Apple of its day. It was like the number one corporation in the world to work for. Mm -hmm. And everybody respected the company. And in fact, I noticed that within weeks of, uh, of accepting a job there, all of a sudden people thought I was smarter than I was before. That I had more profound things to say, which is all rubbish, but, you know, it's... Mm -hmm. It is what it is. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got into IBM. Mm -hmm. uh, but what led me there was the fact that my father taught me years earlier that when I went to, to college, he said, look, I, don't, I really don't care what you major in. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that you learn how to do research, mm -hmm. that you learn to communicate in writing and verbally, that you be curious and be mm -hmm. open to new ideas. Mm -hmm. And then no matter what you major in, you're never going to have a job in that because a, a, a college degree and even a university graduate degree may not be a vocational degree. Mm -hmm. So you need to learn life's lessons. Mm -hmm. And so I had that in mind in 1973 and 74. Mm -hmm. And I was confident that if I didn't make it at IBM, I would make it somewhere else. But mm -hmm. it would be interesting and exciting. Interesting. And so so he stressed uh, to you to me. the importance of <laughs> learning, the, in, the importance of adaptability. That's correct. And it turned out it was, a, it was the right decision because I never met in nearly 40 years, I never met a stupid IBM employee. As a group, 99.99% of them were smart, educated very well, sophisticated, worldly, polished, good communicators, and with a, uh, a set of ethics that anybody would be proud of. Mm -hmm. Now, that wasn't always the case in dealing with some clients and customers and so on, but the uh, point is that I happened to stumble into an organization that was magnificent in terms of its culture, in terms of its ethics, the quality of the people. Mm -hmm. So I was constantly challenged. Mm -hmm. I, I met more smart people there than I did in, in academia. Think about that. That's I think there's a lot of mythologies in academia that are quite self-indulgent about where we stand in terms of other domains. But I, I wanted to ask you, did you, did you feel like you st stood out with your historical background at IBM? 
maybe vis-a-vis other social scientists or, or um, you know, MBAs. I didn't uh, stand out in the eyes of other people because the longer okay. you work in an organization, the more you're judged by the context of that organization. Mm-hmm. What were your previous assignments? Mm-hmm. What were your values? As mm-hmm. expressed in the terms of the organization you work in. Mm-hmm. In my own mind, inside of me, mm-hmm. I knew, in addition to whatever it is I learned at IBM, mm-hmm. I knew I was a historian. Mm-hmm. And I took a historical perspective of mm-hmm. everything that I did. Mm-hmm. I brought the historian's craft. I didn't broadcast it. Mm-hmm. I didn't spend a lot of time talking about books that I wrote. Mm-hmm. I treated them as hobbies, as a hobby, mm-hmm. just like somebody at IBM might treat tennis mm-hmm. or growing flowers. I just haven't had this weird thing that I, I would write. So I really didn't mm-hmm. talk a, a lot about it. And part of it is because I was, my performance was being measured in business terms, not scholarly terms. Mm-hmm. I could write a book, big deal, who cares? Uh, did I grow the revenue in my organization by the amount that I was supposed to. Ah, that they cared about. Right? Mm-hmm. So you just need to understand that there are these two things going on. And by the way, I think everybody's that way. I mean, for example, if uh, there were a lot of uh, people who excelled in sports mm-hmm. who came into IBM. And all their lives, they liked playing football or reminisce about how they played on a national championship football team, uh, going to the Rose Bowl. I had an employee who went to the Rose Bowl. As a football player, in a winning year. Mm-hmm. Well, you would think that for the rest of their life, that'd be all they'd want to talk about. No, they became IBM employees and they focused on the same issues as we did. But, you know, in their mind, they were lifetime football fans. And in this particular mm-hmm. instance, this individual would go to Rose Bowl games and mm-hmm. football games at, uh, at Notre Dame where he went to school and played. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. was his identity inside of himself. Mm-hmm. And so it is with many other people. Some people right. were gardeners. So deep inside, you knew you were an historian. You knew that you were able to draw on the tools that you have acquired right. as an historian. You didn't necessarily broadcast it, but, but you realized it was part of what you were contributing. So my question is, you know, you held various roles at IBM. You worked in sales, in management, and consulting. Could you talk about how actually your historical training fit into those successive roles? What skills did you use, for instance? How exactly did you see it useful? Were there any moments where people that you work with, I know you didn't broadcast it, but but it must have been evident at some point that you had these competencies. Did you articulate your value as an historian at any point and to whom? Could you talk a little bit about these experiences? As a historian, I knew the power of context and prior experience. Mm -hmm. So every job I had, every call I made on a potential client, every call or visit that I made to a government official, I researched in advance beyond just the, the trivial, obvious thing about, well, what are what's my, my company's issue with this particular customer or this particular government official? Besides that, which everybody does, so that's, right. is I would look at uh, the longer term thing. What's been the heritage or the history of this particular customer or this particular government agency? Uh, what's important to them over time? What's What's worked and not worked? Mm -hmm. What's been our relationship with that organization? When I was a salesman in the 1970s, for example, every customer that I had, and customers were defined as company to company, not to individual. Mm -hmm. One of my customers was was a division of Ford Motor Company. I went back and did research on when did IBM first start doing business with Ford Motor Company? Well, it did Mm -hmm. it back when 
Henry Ford Sr. was running the place. You know, At that point, IBM had been doing business with him for 60 years. Mm -hmm. Well, the people that I called on at Ford didn't know that. But in my first meeting with him, I said, I'm delighted to uh, uh, assume the mantle of managing the relationship between IBM and this division of Ford, because this is a relationship that has been valued by both our companies for the last 60 years. Mm -hmm. And now it's your turn and my turn to nurture that relationship. Mm -hmm. By the way, that's exactly what an American ambassador who is a science aide to France says to the, to the French uh, prime minister or the foreign minister. Mm -hmm. You know, we were allies during the American Revolutionary War of the 1770s, and we valued that relationship for the last 200 years. Mm -hmm. It's now our turn for the next three or four years to continue that relationship. It's bigger than you and I. So whatever mm -hmm. issues we have individually, mm -hmm. you don't like my computer or I don't like the way you don't pay your bills, whatever it is, we're going to resolve that because the relationship is bigger than the immediate issue at hand. So that's the historian's perspective. And I did that all 39 years, about every situation. And then once in a while, uh, something would come up where having historical perspective was very useful. Mm -hmm. For example, there was this one occasion where we were sitting around uh, having a, a meeting about whether or not we should invest uh, $5 million in computing in Africa, in one country. The idea being, well, if all the university students only know IBM equipment, then they, when they go out and get real jobs, they'll, they'll only buy IBM equipment. It's sort of like the Apple strategy in schools in the United States. In the right. It's a proven technique. It works well. So everybody was talking about how wonderful this would be. We want to uh, increase our presence in Africa and so on and so forth. Okay. So they all did that, you know, back and forth. And then, and I didn't say anything. And then eventually the, the uh, strategy vice president who was in the room said, Jim, you're never quiet. Why? And I said, well, I've been thinking about this. And I said, uh, do we really have a democracy here? Everybody thought there was a democracy. And do we have uh, the kind of stability among the tribes that will ensure that we'll have the economic and social forces that are needed? And everybody mm -hmm. goes, tribes? What are you talking about? I said, well, I didn't tell them that I had taken a course in 19th century African imperialism on the part of the Europeans, but I had. Mm -hmm. I said, well, you know, when the, when the place uh, became an, a whole series of independent countries in, in Central Africa in the 1960s, they basically kept the colonial borders. And colonial borders have been established in the 19th century by people looking at maps and not paying attention to tribes. And yet tribes had borders that had been around for thousands of years. And nobody respected that. And, why, and we're having civil wars in Africa from the 1960s to the present, which essentially are the reconstruction of the original borders prior to the European. Mm -hmm. And in this particular country, there are two tribes. And, uh, or at least two tribes, maybe more. And I wasn't mm -hmm. sure, but I was pretty confident. Uh, so what are the chances that they're going to destroy the democracy in the place? Mm -hmm. He's looking at me like, what are you talking about? I said, yeah. So explain a little bit further detail. I said, we need to understand. Does anybody know? Well, it turned out nobody, of course, did because uh, they all lived in Connecticut and worked in, in New York and what have you. And nice, nice Americans, but they, they didn't know anything about Africa. I happen to have a friend in London who worked at IBM from this country and it was mm -hmm. that time of the day where it was late in the day. And when you want to talk to corporate managers, the best time to try and catch them is late in the day because they're back in their office. They've been running around talking to customers all day long, but they're usually mm -hmm. back in the office doing email four or five o'clock in the afternoon. So I said, let's, let's just take a shot. Let's see if he's in. So, you know, we have one of those funny little phones that looks like starfish uh, on the desk. Mm -hmm. And so I called and he happened to be in. So I plugged him into the conference call. And, and my first question out of my mouth after saying, hi, how are you and all that was, how many tribes are there in your country? And he said, there are two. And I said, which one do you belong to? And he answered the question. Mm -hmm. 
So before we even got into the conversation with my colleagues from Connecticut, my point had been made. Mm -hmm. So, we, you know, I had a normal conversation about the political economic situation there and so on, and the conversation ended. Well, the point, the point being, of course, that the tribal affiliations and um, identities might at some point trump whatever is happening exactly. politically across the country, right? And the only reason why I knew to ask the question was because I had taken, as an undergraduate, I had taken a one-semester course on uh, a European imperialism in Africa. Mm -hmm. Very important. That's all I remember from the course. But 30 years later, in that room, I asked that question. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, that changed the whole perspective about whether we should have invest $5 million and so on and so forth mm. in the place. So this sort of thing would come up periodically. Uh, I was going to ask, how often did this actually happen? Yes, did this become <clears throat> systemic? Were you able to carve out your niche or maybe even did it, did it enter standard practice at IBM to have to be able to do this kind of due diligence where you called all upon? All the time, all the time. In these kinds of uh, situations, yes? All the time, because mm -hmm. I valued contact. Mm-hmm. Senior managers value contact. Mm -hmm. Tell me the situation I'm parachuting into. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of times what people will do is they'll only give you the economic uh, perspective context mm -hmm. or the business context or the mm -hmm. regulatory context. I would do a lot more than that. I would say, well, we have a social context. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it really does matter where this person went to university mm -hmm. because it affects his attitude toward this other group over here. Or, okay, so we're dealing with Ireland. Which Ireland are we dealing with? Uh, mm -hmm. Northern Ireland or the Republic? Oh, okay, uh, we've got to be careful. Or if I was staffing, mm -hmm. I'd want to make sure that I didn't accidentally put a New Yorker in an office in Nashville, Tennessee. That was not going to work. Uh -huh. It should, and in theory does, mm -hmm. but in practice, right. uh, that New Yorker is not going to be very happy in Nashville mm -hmm. necessarily. Mm -hmm. So the, the keen awareness of context is, is um, what you'd say, the historian's superpower in the, in the, in the private sector, um, it sounds like. Well, the ability to understand context, the ability right. to connect prior events to current events, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Now, in business, a lot of people really would prefer that uh, historians be able to predict something. Right, that's tricky. What are the odds that uh, the New Yorker in Nashville is going to succeed? Well, like every historian, I would tell you, I have no idea. The mm -hmm. New Yorker could be brilliant and smart and, and socially adaptable, or he could be an idiot. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know. History will mm -hmm. not confirm whether that's right. going to be the case or not. Right. Uh, so what you want to do is you want to let the past prepare you as much as possible for you to make decisions based on current events. Right. With the and understanding that these are these are all tentative, probable, but tentative. Correct. Mm -hmm. It's not a forecasting tool. Right. And yet other disciplines will forecast. Economists yeah. love to forecast. <laughs> Computer scientists now with artificial intelligence want to build these fantastic predictability models, you know, with billions of pieces of information. Right. But that's explicit knowledge, not tacit knowledge. And in the end, it's tacit knowledge that is going to guide you, particularly when you're dealing with ambiguous mm -hmm. topics, mm -hmm. like the effect mm -hmm. of uh, prior colonial heritage mm -hmm. affecting the, the ability of IBM to uh, improve its uh, market presence right. in Africa. Right. 
as we're thinking about, you know, the past links to the present, I was intrigued by another aspect of your work at IBM. In your recent book, Birth of Modern Facts, you you wrote that you were trained in the humanities, but you had to become well-versed in the history of technology itself. Why did that matter so much? And I can guess some answers, but that would only be an outsider's guess. And I guess a follow-up question to this, how did you find yourself comparing? Because I, I'm sure you have this, this sort of learning experiences as a graduate student of history and somebody working in the business sector. The cultural differences were night and day. Mm-hmm. How so? In business, you're focused on quarter to quarter, month to month revenue mm-hmm. or meeting a, a deadline for three o'clock tomorrow afternoon or presenting a point of view in a more extreme fashion than you might in academia. Mm. So there's a little bit more hubris there, if you will, more bluntness mm-hmm. there. There's a, uh, a greater value placed on things like uh, numeric information mm-hmm. as opposed to narrative information. Mm-hmm. I, I got to the point where I was saying, well, it looks like the adjective is dying in modern society, being replaced mm-hmm. by numbers. But what I had to learn uh, with technology, several things. One is that's what IBM sold. Right. I mean, if you were selling donuts, you'd learn about baking. Of course. Because you have to in order to be able to bake donuts and then explain to somebody why this donut is better than that donut and to know mm-hmm. what the varieties of donuts are. Well, So there's that basic bread and butter type of issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, had I gone to work for an automotive company, it would have been about automobiles. Okay, so mm-hmm. there was that. Uh, mm-hmm. The specifics about this machine, that piece of software, and so on. You had to learn that. There's a body of knowledge that you just you had to learn. Right. You also had to learn a certain amount of mathematics and, and uh, um, I would say, uh, statistics, because that's the conversation that was the language of, of business and accounting. Mm-hmm. So, again, mm-hmm. it's like baking. You had to learn how to bake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What temperature do you bake? Right. Yeah. Your donuts and how many are burnt and not burnt and so on. Mm-hmm. So you had and that sort of thing. But then beyond that, I learned that there's a cultural and a political and a social aspect to technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, less emphasized mean? by most people, but more emphasized if you're a historian or an anthropologist mm-hmm. or a sociologist. You say, well, th- these are important things. And it turns out in the end, that's more important huh. than bits and bytes. And, and what do you mean by the political aspect? Could you, could you elaborate a little bit? Well, uh, it could be that, well, my company only uses IBM equipment. I cannot right. recommend Hewlett Packard's because that mm-hmm. just won't go well upstairs with my mm-hmm. boss. Mm-hmm. grew up with IBM machine. Or I'm not sure I want to use Chinese equipment because they might have spyware in it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we're an American government agency and uh, I can't have spies coming in. It's bad for my career. And, right. and of course, as an American, I can't talk. You know, that, mm-hmm. that kind of an mm-hmm. attitude. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. In France, for example, uh, during the de Gaulle years, the 1960s and 70s, uh, government policy was always consider using French and European machines first. Mm-hmm. And if none of those are appropriate, then you may go ahead and take a bid from an American company. Mm-hmm. That's a good mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Same thing in the Soviet Union, same thing in Russia right. today. Um, right. That's the way it is. That's what I, was, I, I was going to say maybe it it matter even more during the Cold War, but 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 it's but I think actually it matters a lot today too. All the time, uh, because, yeah, of course, yeah. Well, whether it's political in the sense of uh, the politics of governments, mm-hmm. public administration, or political within the context of an industry, 
mm-hmm. or political within the context of a customer or right. your own company. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's no different than in, in academia. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. think about mm-hmm. it, if you are a, a young historian and you're writing about a subject that is not fashionable, your career is in trouble. Mm-hmm. You, you're going to be political. So you're going to write about feminism, uh, uh, colonial, uh, you know, colonialism, whatever's hot right now, you know, right. uh, you're going to do that. And that's how your career is going to develop. So you're being political. Mm-hmm. They say, oh, mm-hmm. no, 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 that's not fair. He's just filling in a gap that uh, mm-hmm. uh, earlier historians hadn't done. Well, that's another argument. That's the that's the appropriate politically correct argument to make. But in reality, if you're trying to get tenure as a historian, you better be writing a book about something that is considered very fashionable and hot and trendy right now. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Politics. So so that, that kind of answers my question, actually. You know, by learning the history of technology, you didn't just learn the history of design and technology, but actually how these technologies and designs fit into social and political and cultural histories of these overlapping contexts, it sounds like. Correct. And mm-hmm. what's important here is nobody buys car or computer or stove because they like stoves or they like cars or maybe a little exception there, but or or they like computers. Mm-hmm. They want a function. Right. So when you buy a computer, laptop, or mainframe, you're interested in a certain number of answers per month. You want information, mm-hmm. and you want it fast and cheap and effective and so on. When you buy a car, it's because you need to go to the grocery store, you need to go go to school every day or to, to work. So you want a car that's going to do that. And so that becomes a bigger conversation right. than the object itself. Sure. Fascinating. Let's broaden our focus a little bit. Maybe we could talk about uh, applied history more broadly. I discovered your work through an article called The Case for Applied History in the World of Business. It called for action to historians, which you published in an academic journal, The Historian, in the year 2000. It was discovery for me a few months ago, but only a few days ago I realized how controversial the context of this piece was when I read your book, History Hunting. Essentially, you argue that history could and should be also used in the private sector to advance the goals of profit-seeking organizations. And this was a call to arms, and it starts this way. I'm going to quote the beginning of it. Historians should become more active in helping business managers apply the historical methodology and knowledge of the academic. Business managers want that help, and good reasons exist for historians to offer it. The time is also right for an expanded role for historians because the demand in business and government for applying historical insights is increasing." So here are my questions. One of them is this. What could historians do to make themselves useful in the private sector? And I mean both collectively as a profession and also individually in terms of specific tasks that they could take on. What systemic steps do you think are necessary for business managers to seek out and value historians? Yeah, there's there's a lot to that. there's There's a question about basically what physically needs to happen to build that bridge. Yeah, you should know that I wrote another article about the same time that went into a business journal, having the same conversation with business readers saying, hey, you, you should use historians. So the one article says the historians, you should talk to business people, and here's how. And right. then wrote the other article says, hey, business people, here's... Right. You know, so it's both sides of the conversation. Your key question is bridge building. Right. And, uh, and the two parts to this. The first part is, what's the value that one can bring to the other? Right. So we've talked a little bit about the value of, of the historian, and for me, mm-hmm. so that's largely contained in that first article that you, you quoted, which is, historians, here's what you can offer business people. Right. Contact, historical uh, research on how a uh, company or the industry has dealt with a specific issue in the past. 
mm-hmm. articulating in, in an article or a presentation the key findings of prior experience. Mm-hmm. Mergers are a very good example. Mm-hmm. Uh, mergers in the technology industry are a rather ugly piece of pornography. It's almost like uh, proposing that uh, a hippopotamus and an elephant have sex. Mm. Uh, what are the odds of that working well? And what's been the prior experience with that? It's, mm-hmm. it's not pretty. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, in other industries, mergers work very well. Banking mm-hmm. is a good example of that. So having historical perspectives on a particular issue mm-hmm. can be very helpful in informing a company about how to do it and just simply you know, going on above and beyond whatever the core capabilities are of the two and how they match up against mm-hmm. a particular market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, celebra- having celebratory uh, uh, research to uh, recognize the 100th anniversary of a company or 75 years of a company. Some uh, managers would like to know, well, in addition to celebrating the 100th anniversary, what is it that made us successful for 100 years? Since most companies go out of business in less than 30 years, nobody mm-hmm. survives to 100, very few. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why did we succeed? I mean, when I wrote my history of IBM, the company had already been around for over 100 years. One of the mm-hmm. questions I answered in that book was, why did IBM succeed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Could it you... had smart people, beautifully educated people. I happened to be in the right marketplace. But other companies did too, and they don't exist anymore. Right. So why did IBM exist? So history can help. Historians can help answer that question. A lot of companies recruit historians to write celebratory histories. But in the process, the historians come in and say, all right, look. Here are the four reasons why you succeeded over the past 50 years, 100 years, whatever it is. Mm. And, of course, then the executive uh, who commissioned the study would say, well, to what extent uh, is that going going to happen going forward? Mm. And that's where the cultural anthropologist piece of this comes in and says, well, you've got built into your corporate culture in your DNA certain behaviors that have historically worked to your advantage. Mm-hmm. So before you destroy any of those or change any of those, make sure that you understand what you're doing as a consenting right. adult. You know, right. that it may be time to change your culture, but understand what you're doing here. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Be aware. And right. it may still be fine you know, to change something, you know? but be aware. So that a historian will provide that whether they want it or not, mm-hmm. because they don't know any better right. what they do. Mm-hmm. So when both parties understand that those are the kinds of values that they can bring in. Mm-hmm. Then it, it then boils down to a very project-oriented approach. So historians need to know that if they're going to go in and write a history of the company, they can't take three to five years. they they got to go in with a plan that says, look, I can get this done in 18 months. I'm going to spend the first six months going through your archives, the next six months interviewing people and, and writing the, the first draft, and then we'll publish it, and, and you'll have it in time for your anniversary in October of 2024, whenever, whenever it is. Okay? Mm-hmm. So it's a a tighter project orientation that the business people will want from the, mm-hmm. the historians. The historians have also got to be very explicit in saying, here's how I write the book, or here's mm-hmm. how I do the paper. I'm going to do these seven things and on this time schedule, and, and they'll be held accountable for that. Right. So studying issues, anniversaries, defining uh, what made a company successful or unsuccessful all helps the manager run his business much better. Mm-hmm. Now, from the, both of them don't know how to reach out to each other. I was going to ask about this, yes. Yeah. We know that there's there's this common purpose and uh, mutual reciprocal advantage to talking to each other, but the channels aren't necessarily there, right? Correct. Now, let's take a look at either side. If you're a historian, 
How do you get into a company? Uh, there's several ways that you get into a company. One, obviously, is to find out if they have an archivist, and you can just Google that. And the same thing if they have a historian. And uh, if, if that fails, you, you call their media relations people, and you can find that. Every company has a media relations person that you just type in IBM and, and on the main website, and you'll see media relations, how to contact. Media relations is a good way to get in to any company. Say, hey, do you have a historian? No. Do you have an archivist? No. Can I talk to somebody in marketing or media communications to introduce yourself? Who should I see in your company? Who should I talk to in your company? And by the way, if you do that, after having done a little bit of initial research to find out if there's an anniversary coming up, or if uh, a merger is being talked about in the, in the media, mm -hmm. you say, hey, I can help with that. If there's a merger going on, you can, you can uh, quickly find out in the media, in the uh, business media, Wall Street Journal and so on, what bank is handling that merger. Mm -hmm. And you have the same conversation with the bank. Right. That's so that's one way. Another way is uh, is to uh, reach out to uh, management consulting firms. Mm -hmm. They hire either as permanent employees people from diverse backgrounds, including such odd things as fine art and religion and so on, mm -hmm. because of these core skills, right. as, mm -hmm. as do uh, other types of companies. They also will hire contract labor. We'll hire you to work on this project for, for 90 days, and then you know we're done. And that provides you the opportunity to demonstrate your skills, and they might come back to you and, and want to do more projects, or they may want to put you permanently on the payroll. Mm -hmm. So that becomes another way. And I've seen a lot of historians come into the world of business that way. Mm -hmm. Most of them had PhDs, I imagine. Oh, we're talking about MAs oh, yeah, and BAs also. Mm -hmm. so, you know, it, and by the way, it only counts in the beginning. Right. Very quickly, within 30 days, it's how are you performing? Are you, are right. you doing any real work around? Interesting. Uh, so that's kind of touching on a different question I, I was going to ask at the end, actually. But uh, it sounds like, you know, the, the difference between PhD and, and MA, I suppose, is much more diffuse in the business setting because you have other ways to sort of prove your worth than, than well, writing right. a long treatment. Let's also, let's also remember something that's happened uh, over the decades. The percent of people working in business and government who have undergraduate and graduate degrees has been increasing over the decades. Mm -hmm. The United States is an extreme example. You know, about 30% of uh, the adult population has a post-secondary degree. Mm -hmm. PhDs are all over the place. Right. We produce, I don't know, what is it, what is it about 50, 60,000 new PhDs a year in the United States. It, it, you could almost make a a joke it's it's like a, a ford everybody's got one you know right <laughs> and, and these phds you know they don't die right they, they live for 50 years beyond or 30 years or 40 years beyond uh, getting the degree so you do the math on that and you got millions of phds running around so mm -hmm. uh the phd is not a, a rare degree and masters are even more right right it's just like everybody's got a master's you almost so the point is they understand mm-hmm what that experience is that you bring to the table. Right. So the, the days of talking to somebody who only has uh, an undergraduate degree mm -hmm. is gone. You wrote in another article that the, quote, the value of historians lies in the fact that they think and arrive at conclusions differently than MBAs, engineers, and most consultants and economists. And I can finish this quotation also. You continue because they ask questions of situations and avoid relying on one simple set of uh, hypotheses or case studies. They avoid the classic mistake made by so many analysts, the sin of simple deductive reasoning, which is an interesting way of also kind of showcasing how how historical background kind of preps you for dealing with ambiguities and com complexities of, of the business world, right? Yeah, think about what a historian does. The first thing a historian does 
is he, he looks at a topic and he says, well, who's written about this topic already? Mm-hmm. And then he finds the three or four books and, you know, the couple dozen articles he reads. That gives him an overview mm-hmm. of issues and possibly sources. But then when he's got a, when he or she has to really get into it, <laughs> then what they do is they back off and they go down as low in the in the food chain of data, mm-hmm. usually documents, newspapers, whatever, where they get bits and pieces of information with an open mind. Right. And uh, they look at that and say, well, let me see what the data tells me. And then they begin to see patterns and they see correlations and they work their way up to a conclusion, which may match the book they read or the article they read or may be very different or, more normally, very specific to whatever the research topic is. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you read a, a history of uh, urbanization in the United States, that's interesting. That's the way you would uh, begin studying any urban history in the United States. You look mm-hmm. at that. But then if you want to write a history of your neighborhood, you say, well, that was very nice. I now know there are seven questions that I need to look at. But then you would start looking at local newspapers, interviewing uh, residents in your neighborhood, looking at talking to the police department, the education people, to see what kind of a story emerges about your neighborhood that may or may not match that wonderful book you read right. three, four, five months ago. Right. So that's what I mean by that. Right. right. And they're open to that possibility. Yeah. That'll be different than what the fancy book said is right. going on in America. You may come up and say, well, not in my neighborhood. We had a very different experience. Right. So we're talking about critical thinking, essentially. Exactly. And mm-hmm. so historians do that. And it's an important point to make because uh, in addition to historians trying to reach out to business people, business people need to reach out to historians and they need to understand why they should do that. Mm-hmm. It's also, so that helps. That's also... What I'm hoping to do here is to actually reach out to the people within the business industry and maybe articulate that clearer. I don't think, and maybe you can correct me, that there are executives sitting around there in their offices thinking about how they can hire an historian, where do they roam and things like this just yet. But maybe at some point, you know, there there will be a more systemic approach in terms of outreach. But there are things that historians and business people can do right now. For example, all businesses are organized the way academia is. They have their disciplines, they have their industries, they have their association, and they have their trade and academic publication. So uh, one of the things that business people can do is they can say, well, maybe that also exists on the, on the historian side. Well, it turns out historians have their academic association. They're their trade and industry organization. American Historical Association in the United States is a good example. It's acting more and more like a lobbyist, especially mm-hmm. today with a lot of politicians trying to control what the messages are delivered mm-hmm. in classrooms uh, by historians. So the American Historical Association is becoming much like a lobbyist organization, like the American Medical Association right. in, in its behavior. Well, businessmen can go to go find these organizations. There are tons of them, and they can Google them just like historians can Google them. Uh, the business people business people can do the same thing. Right. And, and all these associations will point them in directions of where historians are. Mm-hmm. Also, business people know that every college and university has a history department. Right. They could just pick up the phone, telephone, and call the local university and say, can you connect me to the chairman of the history department of whatever the local university is? Mm-hmm. So obviously they'll take their call and say, hey, I'm going to have a 100th anniversary and I'd like to hire a historian. Do you have anybody on your staff who might be interested in working on this? Right. And of course, he's going to get a response back. Right. Did you get any feedback from executives, those who have read your 
article. I'm not talking about academics now because I have read about this and I can imagine also. But what about business executives who read it? Was this a revelation to them at all that, that there's this resource? Um, they do read there. it. Okay. Uh, uh, let's take a look at the IBM book, the history of IBM, which takes a story right up to the present, mm -hmm. up to 2018 when we finished writing it. Um, I know for a fact, and we won't mention names, but I know for a fact some very specific individuals in the right parts of the company read the book. Why? Because several of them emailed me back with follow-on questions. Mm -hmm. And then I could see certain behaviors changing mm -hmm. among certain people. Okay. In uh, 1993, I published my first book about IBM, and I sent a copy of it. It came out the same month as a new chairman uh, came on board at IBM. Mm -hmm. Two months later, I got an email from him asking mm -hmm. some specific follow-on and mm -hmm. complimenting me on the book. Mm -hmm. So they do read. They appreciate history. Mm -hmm. uh, the best place to to uh, get your impact is if you uh, if you're a historian and you write an article on the value of history in, and publish it in a trade journal, banking journal, retail industry, mm -hmm. because then you'll know one way you'll get feedback is you'll get a phone call. I want to talk. Another way is if you uh, post something on LinkedIn of a historical nature. Mm -hmm. For example, a couple weeks ago, I posted on my LinkedIn to my LinkedIn community a one-paragraph post that said, here are the four things that uh, business people learned about how they operate over the past 150 years. One paragraph. Mm -hmm. There were 2,000 impressions made within a day and a half. Mm -hmm. That's called feedback. Right. And then you get, you know, the like. So posts, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, you get a lot of feedback today that you wouldn't have years ago. Short form writing, not necessarily books. Correct. And then, of course, uh, emails. So, for example, uh, one of my big concerns for that book was, did I describe a IBM's corporate culture, which I consider to be crucial to its success over the past previous century? Did I get that right? Because everybody else outside of IBM had written about it, didn't get it right. Mm -hmm. Just didn't get it right. I know because I lived in the company for 39 years. They didn't get it. Right. So I tried to fix that. Well, within the first year, I must have gotten 200 emails from IBM employees at different ranks from top of the house on down saying I got it right. And if there was a complaint, it was, why didn't you describe my division more than somebody else? Mm -hmm. uh, which in the academic world might be the same as why didn't you spend more time writing about the economics department rather than about the history department? Mm -hmm. Sort of. Mm -hmm. We're talking about society rather than politics. Exactly. Right. That's, so these are the kinds of choices. You will yes. get feedback. And the feedback teaches me, based on a couple of dozen books I've written uh, on business, is that there is an appetite at multiple levels of an organization, and not just simply among the retirees. Right. So I have to ask another question, because that is on the minds of, I think, a lot of people who are at these intersections of business and academia, or, or thinking about building a bridge one way or another. And I think... It's a devil's advocate question, right? What would you tell those people who think that applying history to a business setting is something of a heresy? Because I think most people go into history doing PhD in history because of motives that are very idealistic, a pursuit of truth, changing the world. The word profit doesn't necessarily jive with those idealistic aspirations, right? And so I think a lot of people frowned upon applying historical skills in the private sector. Is this as black and white as we often think? And I mean, is there any any response that you might have based on based on your own experience of making impact for a reputable company? Well, a couple of things. Number one, characterizing profit motive as being evil is naive. 
I mean, in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church said, oh, uh, making a prophet is a sin. By the end of the uh, Protestant uh, Reformation, it became uh, uh, a different perspective. It was no longer as sinful. If you don't make as much money as you spend, there's no reason for that business to exist, mm-hmm. right? You cannot buy a loaf of bread unless your baker makes enough money to pay for the manufacture of the bread and to feed his own family. Right. So we're dealing with a little bit of semantics here, but the fact is, if you want somebody to make bread for you, you got to make sure that person charges you enough so that they can continue to make bread. Mm-hmm. Okay? So let's get real. Okay. Number two, I have found that uh, an underlying prejudice on the academic side is this mm-hmm. thought that only dishonest or evil people are greedy and, and want to make a profit. Mm-hmm. Not so. The most ethical, honorable, honest people who want to fix the world's problems that you can find exist in business. Now, what's interesting about that, and, and it's very important for your listeners to understand this, it's those people who have the assets, people, money, buildings, and so on, to actually solve world hunger or fix a problem. Not some lonely professor sitting in his office who has only the power of one. The chairman of the board of IBM runs an $80 billion business in 175 countries, and it's got 300 and some odd thousand people that he can persuade and apply and use to go fix a specific problem. What professor can do that? So if you want to actually solve the world's problems, you got to be a government official Mm -hmm. or you got to be in the private sector. Mm -hmm. And remember, chairman of the board of IBM or Ford Motor Company has got to make enough money in order to be able to apply 300,000 people, $80 billion in 175 countries to go solve a problem. Right. Yes, because of course, organi- private organizations are, are solving problems. So. They're the ones who are going Not to just create problems. problems. It's fine for, for a professor to say, oh, we should uh, get out of the oil business. It's never going to happen until ExxonMobil and Shell find that they can make more money turning oil into plastic or uh, investing in windmills mm. because it's it's a better, uh, economically better thing, more affordable. Right? Mm-hmm. And by the way, those companies are doing that. Mm-hmm. So they have the same problem uh, of any uh, company in any technology-based company. That how do you move from one technology base to another? Mm-hmm. and along the way continue to stay profitable. Otherwise, you're never going to get to the other. Right? Mm-hmm. So when IBM moved from tabulating to computers, that was a 15-year transition, and they had to make money along the way. Otherwise, they were going to go out of business. So it's, it's the baker who goes from making round rolls, uh, loaves of bread, to baguettes, Mm-hmm. to uh, high-end uh, chocolate cakes. Right. How does he get from one to the other? He's got to stay in business in order to make the transition from round loaves to uh, more profitable, or right. more desirable chocolate cakes. Right. It's, the same, it's the same issue, isn't it? Of course, yeah. And I think it's also important to point out that you know, universities more and more operate in a similar fashion, with similar structures, with a similar yeah. eye for tuition money and is treat you know they're treating students like customers more and more including, and ch- changing a lot of things yes including university presses that publish your book right exactly they will deny that they're concerned about how many copies of a book they publish but that's nonsense they have to recover their costs for mm-hmm. the publication effort because they don't have enough budget their budgets keep getting cut so they have to make it up in the marketplace and the way they do this is by publishing books that are on topics that are fashionable and they'll couch it in the language of uh, you know, this is where the research is taking us and so on and so forth. So now if you publish a, a history of uh, environmental problems somewhere, it'll get published tomorrow morning. 
because they know they're going to sell 1,500 copies of that, whereas your, your diplomatic history of uh, relations between uh, Andorra and, and France in the Middle Ages will only sell 200 copies, even though it may be enormously important for giving us insight about how small countries operate in a mega environment. Right. It's not going to get published. So it's been 23 years since you published this rather controversial article, or actually set of articles. How do you see the difference now? from today's vantage point. A lot has changed. Technology has advanced. And it seems to me that there's a little more of, a, of an exchange between the private sector and academia, but, but yet not enough. Am I right in, in seeing this? It's hard to tell because there's been no survey work done on it. So it's uh, ephemeral evidence. I see more business books uh, being published, which tells me that the audience has got to be bigger than uh, the academic one. Uh, there are more business books being written by journalists mm -hmm. and by business people than, say, 20 years ago. That tells me there's a bigger audience there. In fact, I don't think business historians are keeping up with their market share. Their mind share. The, the market has gotten bigger and they haven't grown as much. So they need to talk more to a larger audience. And, and that's no surprise. I mean, we talked earlier about, you know, more people have been to university and college. If you take a look at the methods that uh, business people use in business schools to study managerial issues, it's always the case study, which is the, a classic example of uh, the method that a historian uses. Every Harvard right. Business Review article is, is a history article. Come on, right. know, look at it. Um, you mentioned it in one of your articles, and of course now it, I cannot changed. unsee it. I cannot unsee it now. Yeah, uh, it hasn't changed. Uh, but the application, the conversations between the two sides, I think hasn't really improved uh, substantively over the years. I think the bridges still need to be built. We have footpaths mm -hmm. to each other. But it, it really hasn't expanded to the extent that uh, I think it could and that it needs to. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Then we have this interesting phenomena. We're going through what is now the second renaissance of artificial intelligence. I was going to ask about this. Thank you. Yes. Let's talk, let's talk about artificial intelligence. Right now, as we speak, in March of 2023, you cannot pick up a newspaper, a magazine, or a blog or anything else without somebody talking about what's happened with artificial intelligence in the last 90 to 120 days. Well, what they're describing today has been under development for well over two uh, decades. So let's be candid. It's only coming out right now. Mm -hmm. uh, what you're having is the ability of computers to be able to look at massive amounts of information, raw data sitting out there on the internet where probably 95, 98% of all information today that's recorded is now in digital form. Mm -hmm. You can go in there, take a look at it, find uh, correlations and relationships and probabilities that they match each other mm -hmm. and put that together in a narrative form and not just simply the old Google search of here are the 1.5 million uh, places that you can go to find the information. It's actually integrating them into human narrative using uh, natural language forms. So you look at that and you go, well, I don't need uh, Jim Cortada to do this anymore. I, you know, in 10 seconds, I can get a, you know, a chapter length study about so that, That's exactly what I was going to ask you yeah. about. How is AI going to disrupt this project of applied history that is well, developing? Well, two things are going to happen. Two things are going to happen. People are going to use it because they're going to think, well, this is a quick way to get information. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is there are a lot of mistakes out there, mm -hmm. a lot of errors. Because all it does is connect explicit pieces of information together. 
What about the judgment, the wisdom, the, the tacit knowledge? Mm -hmm. What about the guy in the room who, who says, well, wait a minute, before we put a computer in Central Africa, don't we have to take into account tribal politics? Right. The AI system may not know to connect tribal politics and computing in the narrative. It doesn't because make sense. Because all it knows is it. information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because mm -hmm. it might only be, you know, out of the trillions of pieces of information out there, there, there might only be three little mentions out of five trillion mm -hmm. where the two are connected together. So mm -hmm. it's, going to, it's going to discard that. Right. So we're but talking about me. judgment again. Right. Yeah, but not me because I accidentally took a course 30 years ago that popped into my little pea brain in that room at that time, and it worked. Right? Mm -hmm. So right now, the people who are studying AI are saying, yeah, this is all very interesting, but there are a lot of things that yet need to be developed. Mm -hmm. One piece of advice I'd give to people who, after looking at computing for the last close to 50 years now is, uh, look, hype always precedes performance. Mm -hmm. Right mm -hmm. now, you have the big parade. Everybody's saying oh, AI is going to change everything overnight. And, uh, you know, one million people are regular users of, of the new uh, GPT uh, software mm -hmm. and so on. That's like a parade. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not the main event itself. It's the circus mm -hmm. parade that announces the parade has come to town. It's coming to town. But it's not the circus itself because you have to still go out to where the, the tent is, you know, where, right. where the elephants are and so on. Mm -hmm. So... I would be cautious about uh, thinking that uh, AI is going to change everything overnight and also be cautious about that. It's not as sophisticated as it will be. Mm -hmm. It's going to be fantastic very soon. It's a tool. In other words, it should be used along with other tools. Mm -hmm. And remember that a vast amount of information that is relevant to a company mm -hmm. is still not on the Internet. Right. It's in the heads of employees. It's uh, in uh, the archival records of companies in whole industries. That's an excellent point, of course. You know, I just finished writing a, another book on IBM that'll be out at the end of the year on, on corporate culture, mm -hmm. on this corporate culture, because I didn't quite get the job done that I wanted in the first one. What's the title and of this book? Corporate okay. Culture in Action. Thank you. It's the title. It'll be published by Columbia University Press at the end of the year. But the thing about that book is that uh, I would say 95% of the material I use to write that book is not in digital form. I'll give you a simple example. Postcard. Every corporation mm -hmm. in the first half of the 20th century, big corporation, published postcards showing mm -hmm. their big modern factories and so on. Mm -hmm. And if you went to one of these factories as a customer to see how the products were being made, you would be given a postcard as a souvenir. Mm -hmm. And if you were spending the night there, you might write on the back the way you would a text message today. Hi, mm -hmm. honey. I'll be home on Friday. I'm having a great time here. This place is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So that postcard goes to the guy's wife, and 50 years later, it gets sold on eBay to me. Why That's do I want that postcard? It's a text message that tells me manuscript. It's a manuscript, mm -hmm. archival evidence, that tells me what people thought about the tour at the factory mm -hmm. 50 years ago. You're not going to find that. Uh, in a digital file, unless it's just momentarily at eBay for the two weeks that it's out there before I spend right. the four dollars to go buy it, you know, and then it goes, it disappears, right? Mm -hmm. And yet I use that postcard. In fact, I have a whole chapter in the book about postcards, and I have 150 postcards that I, I wrote, wrote the chapter on, and not a single one of them is available as an archival source. Incredible. 
Yeah. So the whole book is done that way. Very little. The only thing that you'll find in there is that in the beginning, I say, you know, IBM has this many people and this amount of money and so on. That, that you can get off you know, the Internet. So there's still a lot of material out there that is not available online. Just it's isn't. A fascinating example. And thank you for this dose of optimism toward, towards the end. Yes, because I think we're, we're all scared a little bit about how white collar work worker uh, is going to feel the impact of AI coming in and everyone losing their jobs. But it yeah. sounds like that never the, the doomsday scenario is not yeah. yet upon us. Well, um, and it never will be. History of technology transfers, particularly uh, changes uh, in computing, if you want to get very specific, indicate two things. One is some jobs do go away, uh, things that can be automated. But other new jobs come along, and oftentimes more jobs than were available before. And that pay better. You just have to be have a different set of skills is historically what you get. Yeah, with mm -hmm. all the automation that we have in this country, we still have jobs for, sure. for everybody. They'll mm -hmm. be different, but not always different. We'll mm -hmm. still need the baker. If you want a haircut, you still have to go to a human being. I don't see a uh, haircutting... Uh, uh, robot yet it may happen no, i won't be the first one to try it out in any case yeah. and you won't be the first one to do it. <laughs> but there will be 10 percent of the workforce that will try it out because 10 percent of the public will be the first to always try the new watch the new right. pc the, the new apple the the new whatever always right. interesting really a fascinating perspective thank you very much again jim for uh, joining me it's been a, a great conversation i really appreciate it and i look forward to your new book coming at the end of the year my pleasure. Thank you. This was Chronolab, a podcast about the practical uses of history. Thanks for listening. For more upcoming conversations about the value of historical thinking in business, tech, and beyond, check out the podcast website at www.chronolab.buzzsprout.com. On the website, you'll also find contact information and social media links. Let me know what you think about the show and how I could make it more useful to you. Also, if you use historical expertise, methods, or skills to advance your professional goals and make an impact outside academia, I'd love to hear from you. I'm the host, Patrick Babiratsky. I hope you'll join me next month.